Uh, I mean, I think there's a lesson there just in what you're asking. Uh, and I, I conclude my book, Ego is the Enemy, with this idea. Um, there's a line from Bismarck, uh, the, the, the German politician, and he said, you know, any fool can learn by experience. I prefer to learn by the experience of others. And so just this idea of like, hey, there's a couple thousand years of recorded human history of which really smart people have written books or essays or given speeches about their experiences and the lessons that they've learned. Why would you not avail yourself of those lessons? Why would you go like, oh, I'm going to wing it. Like, I'm going to I'm gonna just do this by trial and error. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Hello Alfred. Alfred marries powerful technology with excellent service to keep your home running smoothly. If you're tired of spending your weekends cleaning, doing laundry and grocery shopping, you need to try this on-demand service. Dedicated, trusted Alfred Home Managers coordinate and take care of time-consuming tasks and chores so you can focus on what you love. Visit helloalfred.com forward slash behind the brand. And now let's get into our episode. I'm Ryan Holiday, best-selling author, and you're watching Behind the Brand with Brian Elliott. Hey, I'm Brian Elliott. Welcome to another edition of Behind the Brand. Today I'm here with best-selling author Ryan Holiday. Ryan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I usually ask my guests, how'd you get this job? Okay. It's a weird, writing is a weird job because nobody gives it to you, right? Uh, and my path was strange. I started as a research assistant for a writer, and then I had a seven-year detour as a marketing director and marketing consultant. But what I really wanted to do was be a writer. And so the paths sort of converge. Uh, I'm researching and thinking. I knew someday I would do a book. And then that, that came together in my first book, which is sort of an expose of the darker side of, of marketing. And I thought, okay, now I'm a writer. And then I, I didn't stop doing the marketing thing. So it, I, I just kept, there was sort of these parallel tracks that converge, and then they kept going in a parallel direction for, for a long time. So it's, 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 as James Altucher would say, it's like a job you, choo- you choose yourself to be a writer. No one's like, I think people think if I go to school and get an MFA or I, write really great stuff on the internet, someone will say, like, you're officially a writer. But you never arrive at it. It's, it's a weird thing. I want to go back a little bit, maybe, okay. to your childhood. Tell me about where you grew up and how you grew up. So I grew up in a suburb of Sacramento, California, not a particularly notable place. I didn't know, I didn't know any writers. You know, none of my parents' friends were writers, so this wasn't, like, a viable career path. There was no... There was no modeling. You didn't see it happen. Yeah, and, and I don't think I... I loved reading. I was a huge reader as a kid, but I don't think I ever thought like those are real people that do this for a living. And that like my parents had a job. My dad was a police officer. My mom was a school principal. I don't think I, it, it ever occurred to me, and it certainly wouldn't have occurred to them that writing was a job like their jobs. It paid a little differently, and it was a little more untraditional. But that it was an occupation, it was a craft. You know? Wow, tough, tough crowd. Like you know, yeah. very authoritarian, right? Like yeah. school principal. Police officer. Very traditional sort of blue-collar, middle-class professions. You know, they wanted me to go to college. I ended up dropping out of college at 19. You know, did not go over super well. Um, what kind of kid were you? What, what did you want to be when you grew up? Did you, did you think about other career paths? I, I think I knew that I didn't want to have a job. I think I didn't want my parents' life in that sense. Like, I didn't want to work all the time and then have, like, set vacations, or I didn't want it to live in necessarily one place. Like, I, I didn't want, like, a normal life. And why is that? Because that, I don't know if that, it seems weird, like, the, that yeah. 
I would, maybe weird is not the word, right word. It's unique that you would come to that conclusion at such a young age. Well, maybe it's, it's sort of, it was like a good rebellion, right? Like, so instead of like shaving my head and getting weird tattoos or, you know, I was like, I want to be successful, but in a different way, you know? So it was like a very sort of benign rebellion. But I think I just wanted a different, like, I wanted a creative life rather than um, an occupational life, I guess, is, is maybe yeah. what I was Strained by, you know, schedules and other parameters, yeah? Yeah, I, like I remember once I asked my parents, like, uh, why do we live in Sacramento? <laughs> and then, and they were like, well, it's really close to Lake Tahoe and it's really close to San Francisco. And I remember thinking, like, that's a crappy, re like, why would you really live in this city because it's closer to two other better cities? Like, I want to live in the city that I want to live in, you know? Yeah. So it was just sort of practical, but also very, Im that's a very impractical sort of immature viewpoint also. But so I just wanted to do, I just wanted a different life, you know? And what were you into? Were you the sports guy? Were you the brain? Were you the... A little bit of every... I don't think I had, like, a particularly remarkable childhood in that sense. Like, I'm thinking breakfast club here. Like, if yeah, we're going to put you in a bucket. I was in necessarily in any of those things. And, like, it, it's weird because once you're a writer, people go, oh, did you always want to be a writer? I, get, I don't think I was really thinking about it because I, I knew I wanted something different, but I, you know, was that music or was that... Inter the entertainment business, was it writing, was it inventing things? You know, like it was just, uh, was it an art? It was something different, but I, probably like a lot of people, I didn't actually have any skill, any s breakout skills in, any, in anything, so I didn't know. I just knew, I had this idea that I wanted to go to college in Southern California because like that was like more creative than where I grew up, and then I would kind of figure it out. That's where it was. If I got in the proximity of, the people who did what I wanted to do, I would figure it out. Yeah. Very insightful, though, actually, at a very young age, too, to figure that out. I, maybe. I mean, it was probably that, and then, you know, my, my high school girlfriend went to college down here, too. So it was probably a little, a little bit of both. But I just, I just knew it was like you're not going to figure it out in the town that you're living in where no one is doing the thing that you're doing. Like, I, I think you've got to be in the environment like you're not going to get a, I think mentorship is very important, for example, but if you're not going to have a mentor if no one around you does the thing that you're trying to do. Right, exactly. You've got to be where the action is, where it's mm -hmm. all happening. Yeah. Paul Graham has a great line. He's like, even, even like uh, da Vinci had to move to Florence and to Rome. You know, like he couldn't stay. If he couldn't do it, why do you think you can do it in Omaha? You know, you can go back to Omaha once you make it, but it's really hard to like, break out there. That's interesting. Let's maybe revisit that. My next question is this evolution. So let's talk about your marketing career. Yeah. Um, you went to work for American Apparel, right? Mm -hmm. And that was sort of in the heyday. Yeah, yeah. And, and good things happened. Mm -hmm. But um, how did you kind of rise through the ranks? Did you find it difficult or was it sort of pretty easy in that organization? I think one of the things you want to do if you're trying to sort of break into an industry is you either find someone that's like totally new, that's like you want to get on a, a rocket ship that's going in a direction, or you want to find maybe somewhere that's going in the wrong direction, but like is important or once was powerful, because then you can, you have a lot of tools to play with. And American Apparel was kind of both, right? It was like this company that was one of the fastest growing, hottest fashion brands in the world, but it was also complete chaos and dysfunction. And so when I started there in 2007-ish, uh, there was, it was, it was a, I didn't 
you know, it was a well-known brand, but like there wasn't a marketing department. Like it was all these different people in different departments were involved in the marketing. And so they were, they were like, well, do you, I was like, here's, I think we should do this. I think we need to put all these people in one room. This yeah. doesn't make any sense. And they're like, oh, that's a good idea. And then they're like, do you want to be in charge of these people? And that, that's how I ended up being the marketing director of a publicly traded company. That wouldn't have happened if I got a job at The Gap, you know? Um, so, so you want to find, I think you want to find the places where there's not that much competition or where you have the ability to have a lot of impact very quickly if you're trying to sort of jump ahead in line. I think a lot of creative people think that the, their industry is a meritocracy because they see the best people. They see what seems like really great people on top and they don't realize that there were many other equally talented people or perhaps even more talented people who did not break through for, a variety, for luck because they didn't understand the politics, because they didn't want to do the work, you know, all these things. So you got to figure that out for yeah. sure. On this show, I talk to a lot of entrepreneurs. Um, do you consider yourself an entrepreneur? It's a weird word. I get thrown, I get people throw that at me sometimes or I'll get introduced. They'll be like, Ryan Hall is an author and entrepreneur. It's not like a label that I would uh, personally identify with, but I mean, I own my own business. And I would argue that every creative person, you know, unless you were existing in the old studio system, you know, like you are, you work for yourself. You are you, Inc., you know? So you have to be on, I would say I'm entrepreneurial. I don't think I would primarily identify as an entrepreneur. That distinction makes sense. Yeah, and so then the next question, a little deeper, would be: Then do you think that title is something that we're born with, or is it something that we learn? Maybe, maybe it's like you are born with it, and then we learn the opposite of it, right? Like school does not particularly breed for the traits that are important in entrepreneurship, right? Like independence creativity, thinking outside the box. Uh, standardized tests are not the No. Measure. Well, I mean, a standardized test says, like, here are four potential answers. Only one of these is right. And an entrepreneur exists in a universe where there's no right or wrong, you know, not morally. There's just no right or wrong way to solve a problem. And uh, you have to make up the answer. Do you know what I mean? Like a it, uh, an entrepreneur's life is more like an, an, a free-form essay or something. Like you're just making it up as you go along and you're having to grade yourself, you know? And so uh, I, I think oftentimes, I think people naturally uh, are creative and have good impulses and don't want to be tied down. Uh, they want to do their own thing, but then they, they tend to have those things beaten out of them. So part of it, I think, I think one of the interesting parts of the, of the Hollywood system, for instance, is that you tend to, or, or really, you pay your dues for a while, and you think you're learning how to be what you want to be, but in some ways you're learning the opposite of what you need to be, right? You're learning how to work for someone else, how to follow someone else's rules. You're not learning, you know, to, to own your shit and, yeah. and be responsible for yourself and make your own way. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. I think sometimes we gravitate to become the archetype that we can identify with or others see in us, oh, you know, you remind me a lot of, you can fill yeah. in the blank and then you're like, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll fill That's that slot. Yeah. Yeah. Or, I mean, with writers, people go, they'll, they'll read a book about Hemingway and then they want to, they pretend to be like Hemingway, but what they're ignoring is like Hemingway sitting at the typewriter writing thing. You know what I mean? They're ignoring the 
the the magic. Everything else is like the window dressing. The magic is the making of the thing, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and I think we we struggle to find our own path because the path of least resistance is to go with people with what people already understand what's comfortable. Yes. Because we, psychologically we like to we don't like change. Yeah. And we like comparisons. Yes. Um, and so it's easy slot to fit in, but it's a good maybe reminder. Well, Peter Thiel, who I, I wrote about in, the, in, in my new book, um, Conspiracy, he talks about how we're very mimetic. Now, so not an internet meme, but we copy other people. We look at what other people are doing, and since we're uncertain, we go, oh, that's what I should be doing. And I think this is true in entrepreneurially and creatively, Instead of like putting ourselves out there and making something that's never been made before, which is really where the real success and influence and power and money is, we go, oh, everyone is making this right now. I should do that, right? Podcasts are hot. I've got to make a podcast, right? Uh, all my friends uh, who are entrepreneurs have put out books. I should put out a book, right? Like, we, and, and we take solace in the fact that there's competition, um, and his line, which I think is funny, he says, competition is for losers. And meaning that, like, if you compete, you there's a winner and a loser. Like, you could be the loser, right? And and so I think what you want to do is make sure... There's obviously some rules and some best practices in any industry. But I think you want to make sure that you're, if you're really trying to break out, you actually have to be different and unique. And you have to do something new. You want to go where there's no competition, not where everyone else is currently doing yeah, well, I guess I, I kind of agree with you with a disclaimer that, okay. that um, you know, you don't always have to be number one. Number, yes. number two, yeah. or even number three, is not a bad position to be if it accomplishes your goal. Yes, it depends. Right, it depends. But what you n probably never want to be is number 642. Right. You know, like, uh, hey, there's, there's this new platform called Instagram. Like, let's go there. You're going to be early. But you're probably not going to break through as an Instagram influencer today starting from zero unless you're radically different than what everyone else is doing. Yeah. But the next Instagram is going to be invented soon and, you know, or, or the next platform of some kind. So are you ready to, to jump on that when you see the signs that it's going somewhere, you know? Let's go back because we're sort of getting into this discussion of personal branding. Um, yeah. And I love the new book, by the way. Uh, it was a fascinating story. Uh, definitely like Count of Monte Cristo kind of totally. you know, storyline. Uh, we'll get to that. But I want to go back to some of your earlier books. And I'm, yeah. I'm just curious more than anything, a um, couple things. When, you're a young guy. How old are you? I'm 30. So how do you do this? <laughs> no, I'm honestly yeah. in awe. Like how do I write books? It's or just amazing the quality and the quantity of books. Let me just say that. Let it, okay. let it just settle for a second. All right. It's amazing. Thank you. Um, much respect. Uh, your earlier book or books, um, I'm curious, like personal branding, because do you still get kind of a bad rap from those earlier days? Or, you know, how are you navigating that? And, or do you even care? Uh, I mean, I, de I definitely care because I don't think I'm an asshole and I don't want to come across as one. But I think it, it's if, if you're not engendering a reaction. Can I clarify why I thought that? Yeah, please. I thought that because I thought that you were 
super manipulative. Like you, you game the system. I mean, that's the subtitle of the book. So right. of course, it's yeah. not a, it's not a, a big leap. It was very audacious, mm -hmm. right, to basically publish your playbook. Yeah. To say, you know, maybe even suggest that you could do this too in your own space, and. And, you know, I get marketing, right? Yeah. And, and marketing is a lot of smoke and mirrors. It's psychology and it's a lot of things. Um, but it's also hard for me to break from, from my brand, which is to try my best to be genuine and authentic, right? So how do you, how do you navigate? Let's just maybe talk yeah. about perceptions. and things. No, it's weird because I felt like, and this was probably naive, but like I felt when I was writing Trust Me, I'm Lying, and the subtitle is Confessions of a Media Manipulator, which is what, and it's a book about media manipulation. Um, I felt like I was actually coming from a very genuine and earnest place, which is like, here's how it works. I don't think that it's good that it works this way. And I'm showing you how it works because I think you're going to share my disturbance about this, right? So you're exposing... That's what I felt like I was yeah. doing. And look, I'm, I'm certainly dancing on the line. Like, I, I'm also, I was also good at it, and I, and I also felt like some of it was humorous and strange and absurd. And so I felt like what the book was doing was that. And then a lot of people interpreted it as like, uh, this is good, you should do it this way. And so, look, uh, if I was branding it again, although I think the liar's paradox there in the title, the idea of trust me, I'm lying, can you listen to someone who's saying they're lying, I think it was funny and I think it got attention. I think for the long term, the, the, the costs outweigh the benefits of that title, right? I probably would have gone more with the confessions as the, as the title because it it these people should understand that different word choice, like the slightest word choice, can totally change the the perception of a person, of a life, you know. And they I'm become some, triggers. Yeah, and I'm in some ways, you know, digging myself out of that hole. But I, I felt like I'm going to write this book, and and it's 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 going to be what it's going to be. It's going to get attention. I've got to. If you're not engendering a reaction, you're nothing, right? Like it's certainly better than than obscurity. And then I said, but I'm going to do something unexpected with the next books, which is I'm not going to write more of this. I'm going to write really thoughtful, sort of big picture, philosophical books. And I'm going to, I'm going to let my actions sort of over the long term speak to who I feel I actually am. So that's the lesson, I guess, that I wanted to pull out a little bit. And I think it's a really good one. I'm going to underscore it, which is, you know, you do stuff. Yeah. You ship it. Yeah. Uh, and it's out there. Mm -hmm. And then you deal with the consequences, right? You know, yeah. po positive or negative. But, yeah. but I love your path because um, you have really walked the walk and the talk, you know? like Yeah. And, and look, if you make, there, there are certainly people who have bigger sort of skeletons or scandals in their past, right? People have gotten in real serious trouble. But if you, if you do the work, like if you make stuff that people like, if you put yourself out there and you provide, I think event you can you can overcome almost anything. Do you know what I mean? Like you can not erase it, but you can transform it and change what it means. You know. And so, are you writing with people in mind, or are you writing for yourself? When I write, uh, I I I think it's very important that you know who, so you're writing to someone. It can't be to everyone. Like I talk to lots of authors, and and I guess this is probably true for a YouTube creator or an entrepreneur. Like who is this for? And they don't have a good answer. They're like, everyone or smart people or, you know. <laughs> so, like, I, I think one person that has been successful for me that I write to will be, like, a younger version of myself. So, like, at 30, I might be writing to myself at 
25. And I might also weirdly, and this sounds, be writing to myself at 35 or 40, you know, sort of like, what do I understand intellectually, but that is actually going to require a lot of work to get there, but I can still sort of project out in the future. So a, a version of yourself is really good. And then I, I do think I try to have with most of my books some proxy, some person in my life that I feel like really needs this. And that allows, and that allows me to really make sure the content is nailing at least one person's experience. Yeah. Can I just pay you a compliment and say, um, you know, there's a, I love reading. Um, and I mainly read nonfiction. Um, and I'm a big fan of, it's pretty public, I talk about Seth a lot, I love yeah, Seth's stuff. Um, I love Brene Brown's work. Um, but honestly, and I'm not just saying this, like of, of all the other authors that I've read, your books are the books that have the most highlighter pen. Thank you. And uh, so profound at such a young age, I'm just blown away. It's just, where does that come from? Well, I, it doesn't come from me, right? So I feel like my job as a writer is, is to, I think I'm a great researcher. And I think I'm good at finding connections and threads throughout history and tying them together. The book that comes to mind is Obstacle. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that is, for, so the premise, the idea of the obstacle being in the way, is a 2,000-year-old idea that's validated by both Buddhist and Stoic philosophy. So it's not as if I was sitting there and I've undergone this tremendous adversity and I came to this hard one truth. I mean, I've experienced adversity in my life. I've gone through things, certainly true with my experience. But what I'm primarily doing there is taking this timeless idea and talking to myself and to the reader about the importance of it. Do you know what I mean? So I'm, I'm, I'm a conduit for wisdom and history rather than the creator of it. Yeah, So, and I completely relate because that's what this show is all about. Sure. I'm a curator. Yeah. Uh, I'm a synthesizer, a conduit. Um, Look, and I, I, think, I think there's a humility in that, and I think it makes it easier to be more prolific and to make more stuff than to go like, I'm the genius, I'm inventing this. That, some people are that, and, and like I respect the hell out of those people, but that's not who I feel like I am. And so it's much like, I don't, I don't, I don't, dis, when I, I don't despair when I'm sitting at the blank page going like, what am I gonna teach people? I, I go, what do, what do really brilliant people, what have they already discovered that we've forgotten or we need to be explained better? And that's what I feel like my job is. Let's talk about conspiracies a little bit. Okay. Your, your new material, what a story. It's an, it's an insane story. And several really important lessons. Let's maybe talk about some of those lessons that could be pulled out. Because, you know, I know the people who are watching this, they're either working for someone else or they've got their own thing going and you define conspiracy in a very neutral kind of way. Let's talk yeah. about that, but also then maybe some practical applications for sure. these little rebellions or coups. Or So the book is the story of the billionaire Peter Thiel's sort of 10-year war against Gawker Media. They'd, they'd outed him as gay. Uh, they were sort of this, he believed they were this sort of forced, or terror, this website terrorizing the world, and he plots in secret to destroy them. And... I mean, when, so I, I'd followed this story, I'd read about it, I was lucky enough to, to talk to him, he was willing to talk to me, I talked to all the people involved. And I, again, I think my insight was, oh, this sort of unwieldy, enormous thing with all these characters and all these twists, 
This is a conspiracy. That's what this is. How did you approach Peter, by the way? He reached out to me. I'd written an article about Gawker. I'd written an article about what had happened, but in a, a much less in-depth way, obviously. And he just said, hey, I liked your writing. We should talk sometime. And we ended up talking. And so, I mean, the advice there for me is like, from, from me there is like, when you get, when opportunity knocks, make sure you answer the door. Well, and, yeah, and when you create something, you never know who's watching or, or yes. reading. Right, right, yeah, you never know who your actual audience for your work is. You, you're making a video and you think it's for the thousands of people, but it might be one person who watches it that changes the whole course of your life. But so I think my breakthrough on the book was like, oh, this is a conspiracy. And through this lens, the whole thing makes sense and there's a number of lessons to be learned. Yeah. So, so, so why isn't conspiracy negative? Let's, let's define that a little bit. Well, the wor- like all words, the, the word is just a word and then how it, what it's applied to changes its connotation. And so look, most conspiracies are negative, right? They're, they're illegal or uh, someone gets hurt on the other side. But I wanted to take this idea of like, well, what if you were conspiring, this idea of, of secrecy, of coordination, patience, collaboration, some insight or breakthrough, you know, you find some unlocked back door or loophole. These are all uh, fairly uh, neutral or positive traits. And so if they were applied towards a positive end, why would that be negative? Yeah, well, they're little mini-rebellions, and this country was founded on a little mini-rebellion. I think that's exactly right. And and look, in a way, a startup is kind of a conspiracy. Um, I think a book, like, I think I related to it as a book. A book is a conspiracy. I have this idea. I need people to hear it. I'm not going to give it all away up front. You know, like, it's this, I've got to convince the publisher to get on board. I've got to convince media to get on board it's it's this i'm trying to set i'm trying to sell or like insert by brute force an idea into the cultural consciousness you know i'm trying to like download it into people's brains and i think the intention is also important to talk about it's like why are we doing that because we want to make change in the world because what's because you believe in it yeah you believe in it but you also know that what exists now is not right for some reason yeah i mean if you were sitting down and you're trying to make like a viral video is that not a kind of a conspiracy? You're like, okay, we're plotting this. It's going to be secret. It's, people, are going to, people are going to think it's one thing, but it's actually this other thing. And here's the person we're going to have distribute it. And then this is going to happen. You know, like all of these traits are very similar to what Teal did. Now, look, a lot, it's a very controversial thing what he did, this idea of a powerful person shutting down a media outlet. It has a lot of First Amendment implications. It has a lot of implications about the influence of money in our political system. So my, my premise was all of that is, is secondary to what actually happened and how it happened. And I think, you know, my books are, I try to be amoral in the historical stories that I talk about because I want people to see them for what they are and then learn positive lessons from them rather than to go, oh, I disagree with that person or I don't like that person. You know, like sometimes I'll, I'll tell, maybe I tell a story of Obama in one of my books, or then I tell a story of a conservative politician, and people will get mad and they'll go, how could you say this about, you know, and, and I'm like, because the, the, the lesson is good. I'm not making any statement about this person as a person. I'm just saying what they did here is something, and, and I'm willing to learn and steal from anyone that's good at anything, you know? And so, that, so that's we, how I try to do this book. So, so what do we learn from Peter Thiel and Hulk Hogan's approach? 
Well, he learned a bunch of things, but here, here's an interesting one. So, so they out him in 2007. He was gay, but it was only known to his friends and family. And they write this article, and he's incensed by it. And yet what he doesn't do is react emotionally in the moment. He doesn't go, you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you. He doesn't, a fight doesn't break out, right? He just sits, and he just thinks about it for almost five years. He just thinks about it, right? Like, how incredible is that? Like, he just thinks. And so he's taken the emotion out of it, he's taken the passion out of it, and he's just looking for an opportunity. And so it's not until 2012 that Gawker runs this surreptitiously recorded sex tape of Hulk Hogan, which is crazy and a whole other story, that Teal goes, oh, what Gawker did to me was not illegal, but what they did here is a violation of several laws in Florida and possibly in the federal level as well. So he assembles a team and he says, here's our here's our chance. You know, so, uh, you know, people, uh, to me, the lesson is, again, it's this idea of competition. Don't, don't strike exactly where they think you're going to strike. Don't do the obvious thing. Step back, think about it, be a little philosophical about it, and then look for the opportunity that no one else even thinks is an opportunity, because that's where the incredible gains probably are. Yeah. Wow. Uh, Beware the quiet ones. Yeah, no, of course, of <laughs> course. You know, if, if someone says something nasty about me on Twitter, or I get an email from, you know, in some business. The idea of, like, of fighting back immediately, it tends to escalate things. So, like, just maybe in thinking about it for those five years, he might have come to the conclusion that this is not a good use of my time. I'm going to do something else. You know, so you want to make sure you're, it's, fools rush in, right? Don't rush in. Take your time. Think this over. And then take the you know, take the best shot. Take your best shot. And, I, and I, I learned a lot from that, I mean, just personally in my, in my own life. Well, yeah, and we're back to obstacles the way where uh, yeah. you talk about perception versus objectivity, how important that is. Yeah, yeah. No, if you're just reacting, 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 you're going to make mistakes. And I mean, I think an, an, that, that idea of finding the thing that other people aren't thinking. You know, Teal has this line, he says, you know, most of the things that I'm working on it's not that other people think that I'm wrong, right? He said it's that they're not even thinking about them at all, right? So we, we, often, uh, we often like uh, either everyone agreeing with us or everyone disagreeing with us. What, we, what, what scares us, I think, is to be so ahead of the curve that no one's even thinking that this matters, right? And so as, as this case sort of... Uh, uh, winds its way through the legal system. It's not that Gawker thought that Hulk Hogan and Teal, who was, you know, they didn't know, they just knew somewhat, they just knew this was happening. It's not that they thought that Hogan had a bad case. It's that they really thought he had no case at all. Like there's this famous interview that, that the founder of, of Gawker had some, some reporter asked him about it. And he goes, I don't understand this. Do you? He says, I just don't, I don't get why this is happening. And you can tell that that was why they never took it too seriously until it was too late. So was that hubris then? It's hubris, and, and, but it's also brilliance on Teal's end, right? It's, it's I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do some, I'm going to think about this so much. You know, as an investor, the, the idea is you only want to invest in something where you have an edge, where you think you know something that other people don't know. And so what, you know, I think we can have, if I'm writing a book, I'm thinking, 
I'm not thinking, oh, this is hot right now. Everyone's talking about this. Or I'm not thinking, oh, this is going to piss a lot of people off. I'm thinking, here's where we are now. By the time this comes out, here's where I think we're going to be. And then five years in the future, like The Obstacle is the Way, it did pretty good when it came out. It's done well since it came out. But I, one of my secrets or one of, my, one of the things is that people are always going to be encountering obstacles. It's not as if obstacles are going away anytime soon. So what I was really doing there is trying to own a pain point. Like I wanted my book to be a solution to a pain point that's always going to be there. And so my, I, I know that book's going to endure over a long time in a way that, you know, friends of mine, uh, authors maybe you've had on the show, have had much trendier books that have sold very much better than Obstacle in the short term. But I, I feel comfortable about the bet that I've made. Yeah, and, but those books are not required reading for the New England Patriots. What you were saying to me, I was imagining, and I, my mind thinks in analogies and metaphors all the time, yeah. You know, what Teal did was judo. Yeah. And my understanding of judo is you use the opponent's momentum against them. Yes. And Gawker's momentum, they just thought they could own this. In fact, they had bullied everyone up to date, you know. That, that is an interesting part of this whole story. On the one hand, Teal is this billionaire. But who is more, more powerful? Is it a billionaire or is it a media outlet that does millions of pages a year? Billions of pages a year. And so um, Teal sort of realized that, yeah, there was that hubris there, that they, they were overconfident. And he believed that if he could sort of move, maneuver around them, he could get them into a position where that hubris was working to his advantage. So one of the pivotal moments in the trial is, is during the deposition phase. You know, all the Gawker writers are deposed. And because every lawsuit they'd ever been in had never gone to trial, not only had they never been deposed before, they didn't think that any of this was serious. And so they said a number of things in these dis, uh, depositions that would be used against them later in the court of law that, that a, th a, a more a thinking person or a, a more cautious person never would have said. Well, and even the attorneys didn't really do their due diligence because yeah. they were so confident they didn't catch that one huge yeah. mistake which ended up being the nail in the coffin. Yeah, yeah, they just thought, oh, and maybe, maybe they did catch it, but they said, this will settle, right? You know, so most lawsuits settle. You know, most, uh, most things don't go the distance. And so if you, if you take that assumption too literally, you're not thinking far enough ahead. So they, it's like they never... They never had a plan B for if it didn't settle. And Teal's plan was to never settle. And so... The ultimate long game. Yeah, he was playing the long game. They were paying, playing a short game. And eventually those two things collided into each other. Yeah. I talk about um, how Hulk Hogan used his knowledge of local markets and the people against the other side. That's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, if you want to talk about a branding story, what, what Hogan understood was that this, he would have home court advantage, right? Like, this was a case that wasn't, this is a New York media outlet being tried for an article that they wrote in Manhattan, but they were being tried for it in a small town in Florida. And uh, Hogan, Hogan said to me, he said, um, he's like, I'm a big energy guy, brother, you know? And he said, when we walked into that courtroom, he's like, I knew we'd won. You know, and the trial hadn't even started yet. He was like, he was like, they were in my ring. You know, he could feel the energy of the jury. And like, the, you know, Teal and, and his team did a number of, they were like, look, um, 
Terry, that's Hogan's name. Uh, they were like, Terry, look, we want you like in soup kitchens. We want you man about t- for months before the trial. They're like, you need to be the hometown guy. Like you need to be seen everywhere. You need to embrace. And, and so he, he, had, he had built this rapport with the community that he lived in his whole life. And, and then uh, one, of, uh, one of the people on, on Gawker's team told me that there was this moment as they walked in, similar to Terry's moment, as they walked in, there's the security in the courthouse, and, and they, they saw Hulk Hogan or Terry Bollea walking in and going through security, and they saw his rapport with the security staff. They were like, they wanted pictures with him, they were talking to him, and they, they were, you know, doing wrestling moves and talking about how they'd seen him beat Andre the Giant, you know, and they were just like, uh, we screwed up. We you know, <laughs> we might be in trouble. Like, we definitely uh, don't want to be here right now. And so that, knowing who your audience is, you know, I think Gawker thought their audience was the New York media. And the New York media was very favorable, but that wasn't who was deciding their fate. It was six people from Pinellas County, Florida. And they were mad. They did not, I mean, they sent, I mean, when you get a $140 million verdict against you, you have uh, not won over the jury. You're done. Yeah, you're, they are sending, that is, I mean, that was a financial death penalty. I mean, they go bankrupt because of this. The, the jury said, you shouldn't exist anymore. Yeah. If it's up to us and it is up to us, goodbye. And, and that was, a, that was a, a branding mistake. So what other you know, life or business lessons can we pull out of this for some practical application? Yeah, I mean, there, there, there's a lot. I, I think uh, just this idea of secrecy, right? Like he doesn't, he's not tweeting about this as he's doing it. He's not giving interviews about it. He's not putting out press releases. It would have been valid, like, to think he did, the, uh, so nine years this transpires, and he does it with no public validation whatsoever. Like, although, as it happened, when it's ultimately revealed, a lot of people are very upset about it. But, like, just imagine, this is something I relate to when I write books. It's like, I'm halfway into a book, let's say. I'm six months into writing. But I'm not, no one's saying, you're doing a great job. You know, they're not like, I love this. This is helping. There's a lot of validation and rewards that come at the end of creative work. But it's this dark valley when you're making it. You know, when you're 15 hours into editing a video, you're like, why am I doing this? This is the worst, you know? And, and so oftentimes we can turn to social media, to bragging about what we're doing as a way to kind of replenish that confidence. And so what I think is pretty incredible, what Teal did, is that he did it in secret for so long. He was so sort of, he had this iron will, this sort of confidence. Again, you can disagree with the outcome, and you, you can still be impressed by, like, he was working on a secret plan that was national headlines all the time, and he basically told no one that he was behind it because it, he, did the, he did the simple calculation. More people knowing, does it help or hurt what I'm doing? And the answer was it doesn't, it hurts. It, it makes it less likely that we're going to succeed. And so he, he, um, he did. And I, look, I see this with companies all the time. I've dealt with authors. You know, let's say, you're, let's say you're trying to disrupt some industry. If you say, I'm coming for you, you know, you're all going to be out of work. You've just made a bunch of enemies for no reason. Like, now those people are going to work very hard to make sure what you're trying to do does not work. They go immediately on the defense. Instead, you know, Peter lulled them into this 
yeah. this false sense of security. Yes. Yeah. And again, there's a ruthlessness to that. It's scary. I wouldn't want to be on the other side of it. Well, but there's also a lesson. I don't think it's ruthless. I think it's very tactical. I think it's, you know, if, if as everyone says, you know, business is war or sport, I mean... And, and when I say ruthless, I, I'm, again, I'm not even judging it. I'm just saying that, you know, he was not giving... He was... There's a, a line from Napoleon who's like, you should never do what your enemy wants you to do for the reason that he would want you to do it, right? And the reason that Nick... Uh, Denton was the founder of Gawker or that other people would have wanted Teal to say what he was doing is that then it would have been easier for them to stop it, right? And so you want to go, well, what does my opponent want me to do here? Like, what would be better for them? Yeah. And then probably not do that. Is this punch in the mouth just to get a reaction from me? Yes. Right? Yeah, yeah. Is it, and, and does it feel good for me in the short term to meet a punch with a punch? But does that actually limit my options over the long term? That's a very good lesson of that. Look, very hard to do in real life, but a good lesson. <laughs>